Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Happy holidays, everybody. The trillion-dollar business of sports does not stop the news, the deal-making, the marketing. And so the person who I'm sure you would most want to end the new year, we'll do it next week, too, but to get close to ending the new year, it's the intergalactic worldwide editor for Reuters Worldwide, Global, and Otherwise, Dan Colarusso. That's a long title. Sorry, I made the last half up. You, you made, yeah, you made it up and then and then doubled it, which is great for me. I, if only it reflected in my page. Yeah, let's be, not go there today, okay? That, I'd it, be like Roger Goodell. Yeah, I, I, good segue. We'll get to Look that, at that second. But you're in a good mood, so let's not reflect any of your salary issues. So, But, look, it's better to be at Reuters these days than it is at ESPN. The toxic environment, as one female employee described the company culture, John Skipper, steps down. Uh, Adrian Lawrence files the most recent sexual harassment complaint against her own company. And I'm quoting from that, no editorializing. ESPN has failed to address the deeply ingrained culture of sexism and hostile treatment of women. Um, We all grew up watching ESPN. What's going on there? Um, Look, I think ESPN, uh, you know, it's a problem with size. It's a problem being so big and so powerful um, that there becomes maybe a layer of unaccountability um and the fact that sports is a male-dominated world and it, it just it, it it is it a petri dish for this kind of stuff the john skipper situation also with him stepping away from his post to deal with some some addiction related issues i believe so yet this situation at espn is going to have a dramatic impact on both disney um which obviously owns ESPN as a parent company, uh, and they just did a huge deal with Rupert Murdoch. Uh, so now they have a lot more at stake. They need to scale up everything. Uh, and Hearst, which many people in the media business know, maybe the general public isn't as aware, Hearst has been, owned a small piece of ESPN and has really used that royalty to its advantage over the past decade, um, essentially almost like free money uh, that, that, that gets paid into it, and it is able to spend that on deals, acquisitions, expansion into digital, all the things that, that Hearst is known for. So it's a really interesting trickle that outside of the, the, the bombast or the, 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 the sensational nature of what's going on at ESPN and how public it is, there's this corporate underlying thing here that ESPN used to be a go-to franchise for whoever was near it. It was like, you know, it was a cash machine. Will it stay a cash machine? Will its problems swallow it up? Will there be another upstart? Is this an opening for someone else? A lot of really interesting questions at a time when ESPN is more vital to two big media companies, maybe than it's ever been before. I'm going to ask you, as the expert on all things media related, does the Fox ESPN deal get done and implemented quickly? I would imagine yes. I would imagine yes. I mean, I don't know if implemented quickly, but it gets done because they wouldn't have gotten as far unless there was some kind of ability or strategy around getting past regulators and and getting through the regulatory process. I shouldn't say getting past regulators, right? That's pejorative. Getting through the regulatory process. And I think to some degree um, that'll happen. How fast it gets integrated, 
Not sure, um, but even if integration is a little halting, the, the, the cash flow is still there around some of the live rights and some of the, the, the audience that you have uh, on the sports side. So I think, it's a, I think it's an interesting deal. Well, yeah, and it's in put in, in, uh, in uh, electoral college terms uh, these days, clear path to regulatory approval. Uh, they wouldn't, yes, they wouldn't, exactly. wouldn't have seen it unless they saw the clear path. It is, it is also clear that the, uh, the worldwide leader in sports, we're not piling on, we're just uh, factual here as far as stability is concerned, Layoff talent, layoff uh, uh, behind-the-scenes folks. Now they acquire a whole bunch of assets in Fox Regionals. So um, it's difficult to create a stable business plan if you're over there right now, right? I would think. I mean, you and I have talked about this a lot. You know, ESPN paid up a ton of money for college bowl rights, for all kinds of sports rights. Um, when it turns out those with that bowl exhaustion, when it starts to creep into the bottom line or whatever expansion you're doing, when it seems like the money tree is is just spewing more than you can handle, you make all these hires. You you don't you don't feel disinclined to spend on talent, and you've seen them pull back from that, and that's indicative of all media. I mean, you'll see the networks with their nightly anchors get more and more. I, I hate to say anonymous, but less well known. You don't need the big ticket nightly news anchor anymore. Does ESPN need all the high-priced talent? Will people just tune in for the games and the highlights? Um, or will they learn to run the business like that? And that's, that's the real rub now. Um, where is the value created? And that's what ESPN is rather going through a rather painful exercise in discovering, I think. Well, we're going to find out. Now, from a stability context, and ESPN's not there, to a probably more stable context, let's talk about Roger Goodell's new five-year, $200 million contract. It's basically $40 million a year. Jerry Jones claims victory because it's fundamentally shifted to incentives. And, you know, Jerry says if Roger knocks it out of the ballpark, he'll be rewarded, but there are no layups here. And it helps his whole business because it's incentive-based. Roger could make more than $200 million over that five-year period. And some people are saying it's his last five-year extension. What do you say? If I'm Roger Goodell, I have to take this deal, right? Um, because it does give me the, the path to, you know, considerable wealth. But it's interesting. The incentives are important because Goodell is almost in the situation of a general manager rebuilding a franchise. He can't, if the, if the, if the deal was straight out cash, um, he, the pressure on him to turn this thing around more quickly would be so high that it will be almost untenable, and he'd be almost guaranteed to get moved out or get more um, agitation from the owners. Making it an incentive deal is really nice because it gives him the ability to wiggle. What would you say? It was four years or five? I keep Five at $40 million apiece. Five at $40 million. It gives him three years to kind of right the ship in terms of the national anthem, in terms of viewership, in terms of digital expansion, in terms of international. If this were, again, if these are the bogeys he has to hit, some, some will be easy, some will be tough. Um, but at least it's incentive-based so the owners don't have to feel like they're paying him to, to, and the needle isn't moving more quickly enough for them. I, I mean, you tell me. You, you know the, the foundational issues facing the NFL. If you were an owner, do you like this deal? Do you not like this deal? I love this deal, and I probably wouldn't have had the leverage to do it if I didn't have Jerry Jones be my bulldog. So that worked really well. And also, you know this because on the business side, if you're a corporate CEO – uh, you're constantly balancing the guaranteed piece versus the incentive piece. And since the NFL does not have stock options, 
This is the next best thing. Also, um, there is indirect reward and direct reward. The indirect is how best he calms the controversies, the kneeling, the Ray Rices, etc. And that's part of, let's call it his base. But the incentive is based on hard dollars. And so the hard dollars are not who kneels less. The hard dollars are corporations buying in because people kneel less. And so I think it's a great move for the NFL. And Roger may look back at year six and say it's a great move for him. One other, one, one other thing on that, and we've seen this in the media business a lot. A lot of great media companies have been hamstrung by their inability to let go of their legacy businesses and their legacy revenue streams. And they haven't moved aggressively enough to new ones. I think what Roger Goodell is going to have to figure out by the end of year two of this new deal, or maybe by the middle of year two, depending on how next season goes, um, is what is the legacy the NFL has to leave behind? What's that legacy business? Is it not about the massive TV deal anymore? It might be, but it might not be. Is it something else? Is there another piece of the NFL economy that needs to be relegated to second tier as they put some money into, into pushing out on other, on other fronts? And that's going to be the hard part for Goodell. I don't know how much youth there is um, at the top ranks of the NFL management and how many millennials are surrounding Roger Goodell, but it wouldn't be a terrible thing if he put together a task force um, to figure out what gets left behind and where to go next. Well, and, and, you know, you heard it here first. We've got five years. Roger Goodell is is uncertain about what happens after five years from now. I, I don't know what happens after five days from now for me, but that's a good question to start asking. And I think the five years from now issue is resolved by him, if he has leverage to continue, primarily by how he satisfies his legacy going forward. So I think you are absolutely accurate that it is never too early to start working on legacy. You know, speaking about legacy, let's let's end this pre-Christmas one with a feel-good. Uh, Stephen Pashati, Cardinals guy, decided, and the Cardinals could have sent him anywhere, uh, they maneuvered him to the Oakland A's during the winter meetings because he was then allowed to be closer to his mom, who was diagnosed with ALS earlier this year. Uh, Billy Bean, the Oakland A's guy, says that's what makes the Cardinals one of the classiest organizations in sports, while Cardinals president of baseball operations John Moseliak could say you could trade him anywhere. He said, you traded him simply for geographic or sentimental reasons. No, you traded him because it was the right thing to do. Look for the Cardinals to carry that karma next year. It's a really cool feel-good story. What do you think? Uh, you know, it is. I saw it before you mentioned it to me. I had seen it, obviously, in, in, in the press. Uh, great story. Um, great for the Cardinals to repay a player who has been loyal and a great performer to understand kind of the humanity beyond the numbers off the field um just a and you don't you know sports leaves a lot of franchises whether it's ncaa uh, powerhouses or major league franchises you know they deal with a very volatile market um and they leave a lot of wreckage behind in lives whether it's career minor leaguers who never get a chance injured young guys cte whatever afflictions you come down in sports that the Cardinals were able to display this level of humanity, and it's not the first time for the franchise, and it's not the first time in sports. We just don't hear a ton, of, a ton about it. Uh, I think it, it really was a, a telling move by both franchises, and I think how the A's handle it going forward with whatever time off he needs or 
however you know he chooses to perform or however he 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 chooses to manage the situation i think it's a, it's it is a great christmas story terrible tragedy for the family but humanity shown in a place where it's often discounted yeah definitely often discounted and uh, you can tell the organizations that have the leverage and by the way it's not lost on teams who uh, may use this kind of story to attract free agents in the future. Players now with more leverage tend to go to the right places that do good by other players. And this is a good example. And, you know, you mentioned just in passing the NCAA powerhouses and juggernauts. We'll, we'll get into that as well, as long as the, t- as well as the, the top stories from last year. That's something everybody can kind of wait for for next, uh, for uh, post-Christmas. And we do that every year. And then we start the year after with the top look-aheads of, of 18. Uh, and we talk about the big-time college stuff and who better to focus on it as we get into the big-time bowls now than Larry Scott. You know, he was at Harvard's men's tennis team. He was with the WTA, the ATP. He was a tennis guy. And then he was appointed... Uh, in 2009 as the commissioner of the Pac-10 football conference. They're not in the playoffs this year. They beat the heck out of each other, but yet they are one of the strongest networks, including the Pac-12 network. And by the way, before we even do this, too many bowls, not too many bowls. Too many bowls, but then again, I'm not a huge college football fan. So too many, and I'm not a degenerate gambler. So <laughs> yeah, too many well, bowls for me. Um, I, uh, maybe there's enough. I guess the numbers tell the story. Do people watch? Do people go? Are there sponsors? As long as there's sponsors for all of them, we can't legitimately say there are too many bowls. Well, and, and it's a good answer because too many bowls and too many bowls for you are two uh, very different questions. And when we look for your top 17 and top 18 stories, we're not looking for anything college football-wise. But, you know, I can't make excuses for your lack of diversity. But here's Larry Scott, who is one of the most diverse individuals out there talking about the Pac-12. We think we have college football, but we also have basketball. We even have tennis. We have politics. We have academia, a whole bunch of stuff in one human being who happens to be the commissioner of the Pac-12. He's been the CEO of the WTA. He was also the captain of the Harvard men's tennis team. We'll get into all of that. Larry Scott, how's that for an intro? That sounds pretty good. Thank you. So let's get to the matter at hand, first of all. We are at college football, college basketball time, and you basically have the ability to tout something other conferences don't, which is a watershed deal with Alibaba, the, the Pac-12, the China deal, uh, penetrating China like no other college football conference. Talk a little bit about that. So this is really unique to our conference and our schools being you know, the leading universities and biggest academic brands on the West Coast. Um, you know, schools like UCLA, Stanford, Washington, I mean, these are major global universities. And I was really impressed when I got here about the focus on globalization of the university and kind of quickly posited to the presidents and chancellors of the universities, you know, if sports is supposed to be the front porch of the universities and globalization is this trend and this important strategic priority for the university, is there a role for sports to play in that dimension? And uh, the leadership of our university is very excited about it. So that led us down a path where tapping into some of my prior experience in pro tennis, where I spent a lot of time internationally, a lot of time in Asia and China, uh, focused on developing opportunities for student-athletes to 
uh, participate in sporting competitions and developing some relations over there, which not only resulted in, in great trips and great experiences for the student athletes, but uh, has created a platform where our universities can tell their story, engage with prospective students, alumni, uh, strategic partners they have over there, and there's a growing commercial interest as well. Let's talk for a minute about uh, television because you're a pioneer there again. You know, Pac-12 TV, it doesn't just doesn't start out of whole cloth. You had to bring Fox and ESPN to the table. You had to prop up rights. You had to get the presidents and chancellors to buy into your vision. How does that all happen? Well, we, we definitely had to develop some consensus around doing things differently than we had done in the past. It started with uh, getting an agreement that we would pool all media rights in the center and not have national packages versus local school controlled packages. So, you know, that was kind of uh, uh, It was Green Bay Packeresque of the NFL, right? Yeah, well, stealing a page from the most successful sports league starts with, you know, bundling yeah. uh, all of your rights in the center and being able to, you know, make the most of the opportunity. But for us, it also came with agreeing to share revenue equally, which, you know, was something behind the scenes, but a critical factor um, in getting our universities to believe that rising tide would float uh, all boats, that they would do better uh, collectively with a cohesive package, uh, but all, you know, all had a benefit uh, the, the same way. So that, that was key. And um, then developing a, really a hedge strategy where we tried to maximize revenue and exposure through third-party licensing of rights, which uh, we were fortunate to be able to do successfully with ESPN and Fox, but holding back enough so that we could get in the business of starting our own media company. You know, we believe that uh, over time uh, technology um, would evolve and, and change and really were intrigued with the idea that we could be masters of our own destiny and control our own programming because, you know, core to our mission is not just, you know, revenue sports, football, men's and women's basketball. It's also about promoting Olympic sports. Pac-12 wins more NCAA titles than any other. We've got all these Olympians and wanted uh, exposure and a promotional vehicle for those sports as well. Knew we had to do our own thing if we were going to have a platform for that. So we were fortunate that we were able to uh, launch our own network, do it ourselves, and uh, you know, little, little did I know that the world would change as rapidly as, as it has, but it's really uh, you know, caused us to feel good about that decision because you know, now we see direct-to-consumer, we see these technology companies coming on board, we see over-the-top emerging, and you know, we're in it, and we're engaging uh, with, with fans and viewers and distributors and uh, have a deeper understanding of some of the dynamics and changing landscape that others might. Well, the holding back from the big guys and the equal uh, revenue share uh, are always visionary concepts, and every leader wants to, to, to facilitate that. Uh, but it also takes, I guess, a little bit of table pounding and a little bit of leverage and a lot of advocacy to pull that off uh, at the same time. Hard to do? Very hard to do. I think for any any commissioner, you know, people focus a lot on, you know, the, the business acumen and, and what they see externally, but it's often, you know, the um, diplomatic efforts behind the scenes don't get a lot of attention. That is really the art, I think, of uh, leading a successful league. 
of, of any kind because you know members have different interests. You know we've got big schools, small schools, urban schools, rural schools, public schools, private schools, strong football schools, strong basketball schools, uh, strong you know, women's gymnastics schools. Um, you know with a lot of different masters to serve. So you know the art form is really about creating a vision that everyone can buy into. Um, and um, um, yeah, um, compromise around um, and um, getting people to believe in the idea that everyone will be better off if we're able to achieve certain things collectively that otherwise can't be achieved on your own. Because it does, you know, it is give and take. It is compromise along the way, whether it's in how you share revenue, um, which schools or, or sports are going to be on TV, the times you play. Um, there's a lot that goes into it, of course. Larry Scott, there's another issue too. Uh, you, you you talked about 7,000 student athletes that you you know directly represent. You have a history in the with the WTA of equal prize money in, in tennis. You have Title IX hanging out there. How do you reconcile the gross revenue production disparities between football and basketball and your obligation to deal with all of these other sports as well? Yeah, well, I've always enjoyed um, you know working in uh, sports where you feel like you're making a contribution, just you know beyond the commercial success. As you point out, you know one of the things I took a lot of pride in at the WTA was you know the fight for equality and social justice, and and one of the things I love about being in college sports and uh, at the Pac-12 is you know associated with the universities doing things the right way that are changing the world in a very positive way from a macro sense. Um, and um, in athletics, you know, with 7,000 student athletes, you know, many of whom are going to, or the first in their family to go to college, um, you know, a, about a third of whom um, are on significant scholarships and are able to graduate debt-free, you know, that very different from, you know, the typical student. There's a lot of great opportunity, a lot of great things happening for young men and women because of intercollegiate athletics in the Pac-12, you know, maybe even getting into better schools academically than they would get into otherwise that I get to see. Uh, day in, day out, when I visit our campuses, when I work with our, our coaches and programs. So I'm, I'm just very excited about what the mission of intercollegiate athletics is, is about. Not necessarily that which gets all the media attention, <laughs> but, you know, from, from the seat that I sit in and the interactions I'm able to have with our universities, you know, I see the thousands of student-athletes benefiting uh, from the system. So I do believe deeply in uh, the intercollegiate athletics model, that these are students, that they're going to school and through sport, they're getting opportunities uh, for an education uh, and financial support for that that's going to help them be better off uh, throughout their whole life as, as a result. And for the precious few, and I really mean precious few, I'm talking about, you know, 2% about of our 7,000 student athletes that are good enough and have the desire to want to go on and make sports their career, they have that opportunity as well. Should they be paid? Are they paid already? Are they, should they be paid in the Power Five? Should there be recruiting restrictions put on it? That all is going to shake out over time. What's your stance? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and it's currently being litigated. My stance is they should not be paid salaries. They should not be employees. Um, they should be students first and foremost. 
but they should be treated extremely well and supported in terms of, you know, the ability to have academic success, to be supported in terms of, you know, medical coverage, uh, to be given every opportunity to, you know, be successful in whatever they want to do. But I don't believe that, uh, you know, they should be treated as professionals. I think that that comes next. College is a great pathway for those that want to do that, that want to play pro sports and get paid. And, uh, you know, they can, uh, uh, depending on the rules of any, particular sports league, you know, that's what governs when they can go to the pro leagues. So college, uh, the great thing about the Pac-12 and the other big conferences is, you know, for those that want to go the pro sports route, uh, they can do it um, and, uh, you know, take advantage as much as they want of the educational opportunity. For those that first and foremost, you know, want the educational opportunity, they do that and then uh, go on to something else in their life. Well, finally, so... You know, as a WTA CEO, it's 40% increase in prize money and that $88 million Sony deal and the $750 million in facilities. You take on a new job in a sport you're familiar with in July of 2009. Um, has it been everything that you thought it would be, surprised with how your accomplishments have resonated, a lot more to be done? What's your emotional take on the transition? You know, I didn't fully know what to expect, to be honest. I knew that, um, and what I was attracted to first and foremost was the quality of the universities and loved being associated with quality people, quality brands, and I knew there was, there was a sense that they wanted to take a fresh look at their uh, media approach, their marketing approach, and I thought my background and skills would translate. And I was passionate about it because I was a student athlete myself. I knew I, I would enjoy that. But, you know, beyond that, you know, there was a ton I didn't know about the, uh, the politics of intercollegiate athletics, the dynamics of who you work with on the campuses. And I, I really, really have loved it. You know, but my, my favorite uh, part of it is the, the opportunity to engage with the student athletes themselves when I travel around to the competitions and the campuses. As, as you know, because you, you enjoy getting out to campuses and teaching, keeps you young, keeps you thinking fresh, uh, keeps you on your toes and, and, and always, you know, evolving your perspective on things. So I really enjoy being in an environment around a lot of young people in, in an environment like universities where people are challenging conventional norms and, and thinking about changing the world. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. The producer, Alex Cohn. Associate producers, Freddie Joyner and Ryan Warner. Assistance provided by Carlos Swadek, Tanner Simpkins, and Ronnie Sokatch. And the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Calaruso. I'm Rick Haro. Thanks again for listening. See you next time on Keeping Score.